All right, could we stand together in honor of God's word? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're also going to read it from the screen up on top here, so here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us. And I said, here I am, send me. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we open our hearts right now to your word. Please, Father, hide me behind your cross so that we can hear and respond to what the Spirit is saying to the church, even today. We love you, Lord. Lord, thank you for Lavon. Thank you for the way you quickened her and the love you've given her for the word of God. Lord, we are believing with her. She is the healed. That is her identity. You are the healer and she is the healed. And we're staying with that. Thank you for that promise, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of the message today is Being Right in God's Eyes. We have been going through the Bible this year, and last week we talked about the northern kingdom and the nine prophets that prophesied to them that eventually led to the, the removal of the northern kingdom. It, in 930 BC, the, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom lasted 208 years. In 722 BC, it was taken into captivity, never to return. There were 19 kings that served. And the Bible says this about every one of the 19 kings. They did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The southern kingdom also has 19 kings. But it's not 208 years, it's 444 years. And at the end of the 444 years, it's not they're taken into captivity never to return or take, yeah, by Assyria, but rather they're taken into Babylon where they are for 70 years. And there's a time of captivity and then finally a time of deliverance, which we will get to. But 444 years and 19 kings. They go into captivity in 586 B.C. So the books of First and Second Kings tell the story of all 38 kings. It goes from north to south to south to north. Um, all kinds of stories are in First and Second Kings telling about the prophets. It's actually really hard to follow because it goes back and forth so much. The books of First and Second Chronicles are around the temple, around the worship of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. And so First and Second Chronicles only tells the story of the southern kingdom. Once in a while, the northern kingdom is referred to, but it's about the southern kingdom. It's about those 19 kings. Each king's reign is reduced prophetically 
to one sentence. 19 kings, some of their reigns last up to 52 years, one is 55 years. Some are shorter, some are longer, but all of them have their whole reign reduced to one sentence. Four of the kings, it says this about their, the overall reign, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There are four kings that it says they began right in the eyes of the Lord. Four kings started right, ended bad. Four kings were right all the way through. Four kings started right, ended bad. And then 11 kings in the southern kingdom also, like the northern kingdom, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What can we say about this one prophetic sentence? Here's one way to think about it. It's their epitaph. It's, it's, it's the only thing that can fit on the tombstone. This is just one sentence. You know, it's really important to think about your epitaph because it will determine how you live of what you want that epitaph to be. Now here is the stark naked truth. It doesn't matter how you wish you were remembered. You do not get a right to say this is what my epitaph is going to be. You don't get to determine that. Secondly, it doesn't matter how your family remembers you. Your family does not have the right to make your epitaph. He was a good man. She was a great mother. That's nice, but that's just their opinion. There's only one epitaph that's real, and that's God's epitaph of your life. That is the one that's true, and that is the one that will last forever. It is really important that you and I live for what is in God's eyes, not for what's in man's eyes. Socrates is credited for saying this. An unexamined life is not worth living. Well, let me tell you something. Your life is not unexamined. God is watching every word, every deed, every thought. Your life is thoroughly examined before God. It behooves us all to seek to live for the audience of one, to be less concerned about what the people around us think less concerned about our own opinion and more and more and more opinion or concerned about the opinion of God, the only one that matters. Point two, the prophet Isaiah. His ministry lasted over 60 years. We see his call, which happened at the end of one king's reign. It was the year that King Uzziah died. He had reigned for 52 years. And God calls him in this strategic time. He, reign, he, he speaks the word of the Lord over four kings' reigns. The first one is Jotham, who is one of the good kings. The second is Ahaz, who's one of the evil kings. The third one is Hezekiah, who's one of the good kings. In fact, during Hezekiah's reign, uh, 
that is when Israel is taken into captivity. It's a tremendously tumultuous time, and there is a huge face down with Assyria uh, who has has taken the northern kingdom, which is five times bigger than the southern kingdom, and that army defeated and took them into captivity, and then they come knocking at Hezekiah's door and little Judah's door, and there is a tremendous showdown that we will reference a little later. Isaiah plays a huge role during that time. And then finally, Manasseh, who was the worst of the worst. Long reign, evil reign. This is his call. And from this time forward, he has a revelation of the holiness of God. To this time, the title, the Holy One of Israel, had never been used. Isaiah uses this title for God 50 times. The Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 8, 11 through 13. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. This defines Isaiah. This is his engine room. He is not to live for what other people live for. He's not to live for the opinions that are so around him. He is to live for God's opinion alone. And this was really necessary. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, tells about his call. You can imagine his excitement. God says, who will go for me? Here am I, send me. He's excited. I'm going to go. I'm going to speak for God. I didn't even read the next three verses to you because they're so brutal. The next three verses of Isaiah 6 are some of the hardest verses in the whole Bible to read because God tells Isaiah what the result, humanly speaking, will be of his ministry. He says, and and this is not God causing it. This is God in his foreknowledge. God wants everybody to come to him. God wants everybody to respond. But God in his foreknowledge, he sees what's going to happen. He says, let me tell you, Isaiah, thank you. Thank you for speaking for me. Thank you for being my man. Here's what's going to happen. The result of your ministry is everybody you speak to is going to become harder instead of softer. They're not going to listen to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. They're going to harden their hearts. And then he says, how long, God? How long? I mean, certainly there's a breakthrough. God says, uh, until one is destroyed and the other goes into captivity. This is, this is your life. Manasseh, the most evil king, just hated Isaiah. Jewish history tells us the way that he died. Manasseh hollowed a tree out, put Isaiah in it, and sawed the tree in two. Hebrews 11.37 references it. Some were sawn in two. So humanly speaking, Isaiah, his life is just a, a failure. His ministry, are you kidding me? He's got a church of one. He gives some significant words at significant times. But in the end, he isn't taken up like Elijah. He is sawn in two. So which history do you want to live for? Do you know what Isaiah is known for today? the greatest prophet. 
Do you know what he was called by the early church? The book of Isaiah was called the fifth gospel. No one saw Jesus as clearly as Isaiah did. 700 years before Christ. We we will do his text for communion later on. Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw the cross. He, He saw the resurrection. What God revealed to this man is absolutely stunning. 700 years before it happened. In God's eyes, a radical success. Point three, being right in God's eyes. Worshiping God with your whole heart. Here we see Isaiah's call. First, not to be a witness, not to be a worker, but first to be a worshiper. He views heaven's worship. He enters into heaven's worship first, and it is from that place, that burning place of worship, that he's prepared to do everything else. See, if your identity is in being successful in man's eyes or getting results, you're you're not going to last long down here. He was a worshiper first. So I thought it would be really helpful to look at the four kings that had this epitaph. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And and we will see very soon, every single one of them, it's all about worship. Not just worship, but wholehearted worship. First one is Jehoshaphat. It says he tore down all of the high places. See, there was a lot of religion that had nothing to do with the reality of God. There were a lot of things that were partial worship. They were called high places, and it was man's idea of worship. And he tore down those high places and reinstituted biblical worship and and insisted on biblical worship, not just for himself, but for those around him. And he, he, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You read about Jehoshaphat, and you're gonna like, he was not perfect by any means. He struggled with Ahab, and he was always trying to be friends with Ahab, and it always was bad, and, but, but he loved God, and he, he was wholehearted in his worship. In fact, um, in one instance, two armies come against him, and uh, he calls for a day of fasting and prayer, because there's no physical way that they can overcome this enemy. You can find the whole story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And while he is in that place of worship, and the whole, all of Israel seeking God, humanly they are going to be destroyed. The prophet comes and speaks to them and says, Stand still and see the salvation of God. You're not going to have to fight in this battle. Tomorrow, go out and face the enemy. You're still going to have to face the enemy. God's not going to take care of the enemy while you're in your prayer closet. You face them. You go out and you face life's problems. You face that thing you fear. You look at it head on. As, as Levon said, she said, I'm not in denial. I'm facing it head on. Go out and face them, but you're not going to have to fight. And right then, Jehoshaphat begins to worship God, to sing the praise of God. Circumstances are exactly the same, but he takes up worship and praise. They're getting ready to go out and face the enemy the next day, this, this, this multitude that has come against them, that are marching against them. And Jehoshaphat says, let's send the Levites out first. Those who are anointed to lead worship. And the worshipers go out first. And they take up this song, give thanks to the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And then this scripture in 2 Chronicles 20, as they began to sing, the Lord sent ambushes from heaven. 
as they began, God was waiting, waiting for them to sing, waiting for them to trust him in such an active way that they are already thanking him for the answer. Worshiping, it's easy to worship after the miracles happen. God's calling us to worship in the midst of the battle. <laughs> Pastor Tom, that's Old Testament. Well, then turn to Acts 16, 25. Paul and Silas are put in prison. It is midnight. Midnight means the darkest hour. And at midnight, it says, Paul and Silas began worshiping. They began seeking God with worship and think, well, why are they worshiping God? They're in prison. Don't they know where they are? How many know that God is God whether you're in prison or not? He is always worthy to be worshiped and praised. They began to worship. You read it, Acts 16. What happens is stunning. God begins shaking the prison. It is a supernatural, it's not an earthquake. It is a supernatural shaking. Here's why we know. The shaking doesn't kill anybody, but it sets all the prisoners free. It's not just Paul and Silas's chains that come off. Everybody's chains come off. Guys, do you know how extravagant God is and how merciful he is? Do you know that when you and I, in the midst of a generation complaining and whining, when we take up a voice of praise, do you know that it's not just for our freedom? We can actually, the presence of God will actually free people that just happen to be around us. Guys, we got to get serious about worship. Don't, just, come on. I'm glad you're clapping because I'm going to make it really practical. Do not treat the worship time here like this is donut and coffee time and the real thing starts when Pastor Tom gets up to speak. No, 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 no. The, this is all about becoming worshipers. In fact, what I'm doing preaching is to make us better worshipers, to make us more wholehearted. Not just our song, our lives. But I'll tell you what, praise is a weapon. Praise is a weapon. You want to get through the darkest times? Praise is a weapon. Praise is a ladder that will take you above the clouds. How many know, how many have gone in an airplane and you find out something? Sun's always shining above those clouds. No matter what storm or rain is going on, there's always sun above those clouds. Praise is like a ladder. Wholehearted worship, Jehoshaphat. Then there was Jotham. Jotham, it says, continued the worship that his father had reinstated, but didn't enter the temple like Uzziah had. We will talk about what happened to Uzziah later. We don't have much on Jotham, but he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes you're raised in a godly family, and it's enough to continue on that, that tradition of godliness and to make it your own, and that's what Jotham did. Hezekiah tore down the high places, reinstituted worship throughout the land. Assyria came after they had taken in 722 um, the 10 tribes, which were five times larger than Judah. They came, and you can read all about this in both Isaiah and in 2 Chronicles. And they came intimidating. The king of Assyria came and said, I'm going to destroy you. You need to surrender now. He, he, they, 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 the language of intimidation and fear and everybody is, is like, how can we resist him? He's defeated everybody else. The Bible says that Hezekiah took the letter that the king of Assyria had personally written to Isaiah this, or to Hezekiah that had mocked God. He took that letter into the temple and he said, God, this is what they're saying. This is what they're saying. What are we gonna do? And the word of the Lord came from Isaiah. And Isaiah said, God's got a plan. God's gonna take him back. God's going to kill his army. 
Now, I'm just going to contradict what I just said, because I said, don't expect to be in your prayer room and God's going to solve your problems. That's exactly what happened with Hezekiah. (laughs) Seriously, Hezekiah's in, in the prayer room, and God sends an angel that night that kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The next day, Assyria's like, our army's all dead, let's go back. What does that tell you? <laughs> there's no string God can't pull, folks. There's, no, there's nothing that he cannot do. Take your letter. Take your doctor's report. Take your... Uh, your bill, unpaid bill, and you bring it to the temple of God. That means the presence of God. Take it into the presence of Almighty God. Tell him what it says. Tell him this is what, this is mocking you. This is, I'm supposed to be yours. You're my provider. You're my healer. You're my, this is, this is contradictory to that, God. When Hezekiah gets before God, it's not about, oh, my poor life. It's about your holy name. Let your name be lifted up, O God. I am your representative. I'm all in, God. Do something great for the glory of your name. And then Josiah. We will look at Josiah next week. He trembled when he heard the word of God and went on a campaign to tear down idols and restore true worship. Others were not wholehearted in their worship. They added worship to their life. God wasn't the center. Here's Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles 12.1. After Rehoboam's position as king was established and he became strong, he had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. This is a typical story. When we're in trouble, when it's difficult, we call on God, we're going to get our life right with God, we need to get our life right with God, but then things straighten out and things get better and we're prospering and when he becomes strong, they abandon God. Why? His goal is not worshiping God. His goal is his own life, having a nice, comfortable life. He's using God for his own end. It's about me and my life. And as long as... God can help me with that, then I'm in for God. But as soon as I get what I want, God's out. Horrible ending for Rehoboam. Amaziah, 2 Chronicles 25, 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. He was in, he just wasn't all in. Early in his ministry, he listened to the word of God, obeyed the word of God. He listened to the prophet of God, obeyed the prophet of God. Things went really, really well for him. And then he got a little filled with himself. And he started doing things that God had not told him to do. It'd be hard to find a worse ending than Amaziah. But such a promising start. And then we have Uzziah. This is Jotham's dad. Verse 5, he's in 2 Chronicles 26, it says, He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Then verse 16, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He had a mentor, which is really important. He who walks with the wise will become wise. He had walked with Zechariah, and as long as Zechariah was alive, he was was fine. But you need to make sure that your faith becomes your own faith. You can't just ride on the coattails of somebody else's faith, however much you admire them or like them. You need to grab a hold of Jesus. Zechariah dies. Once again, Uzziah becomes powerful. And he decides in his heart that it's not enough for him to be king. He wants to be priest as well. The priests 
Say, oh, oh, King Uzziah, we love you. You've done nothing but good for the kingdom. Please, please do not do this. You're crossing a line. We're supposed to do this. There are other parts of the body of Christ that you need to be dependent on, that you need to recognize you're not everything. You need the body of Christ. And these, these people are doing something that they're supposed to do, but he wants to do everything. And so he raises his fist against the priests in his anger and his rage against them. And he becomes a leper. And he is a leper until the day of his, of, of his death. He actually has to live separately from everybody else. And the king that had done so much good ends up in leprosy because he tried to overreach. So Memorial Day, we were at a party, a friend's house, and there were three young ladies there. They had just graduated from Bethel School of Ministry out in Redding, California, and just excited about God and wanting to talk about God. I'm, I'm always in for that. And so I, I heard a little of their, their story, and then they just grilled me. I mean, they, they wanted to pull everything they could out of me. And... Uh, one of the questions they asked, could you give us a defining moment in your ministry? And I told them a very short answer of which you're going to get a long answer. It was in 1995, December. Somebody had sent me randomly sent me, I don't even know who it was, an article, and it was like part four of a series of articles that were called The Hordes of Hell Are Marching, and it was from a guy named Rick Joyner. And this specific one was on the judgment seat. And I read this, He had a third heaven experience and he was allowed to see people that had already been judged and no one knows how this works but he is in this line and he is, is talking to people that were some of his mentors, some famous guys that had written books and, and they are in this place where they explain that they were part of the 1 Corinthians 3 where all of their works, all that they had done was burned. Even though they themselves were saved as through fire, the works were all wood, hay, and stubble. And he, they are so glorious and so beautiful. And, and he, he loved their works and thought they were, they were amazing guys in earth's opinion. And he said, how can this possibly be? And they started telling about their motives for ministry, their insecurity that they had operated. One reformer said, my, my, everybody thought it was just this well-oiled machine that was always unified. He said, we were unified. He said, it was the unity of a concentration camp. I belittled anybody that, that, that differed from what I said. Everybody walked on eggshells around me. It's the pure mercy of God that I was saved. As I'm reading these accounts of people before the judgment seat of Christ, I experienced the prophetic ministry. I I was in such deep pain. I could see my own ministry. I had been a pastor for eight years at this point. I could see my own ministry so painfully clear. And I realized I, I, I was these guys. I was all about image, all about everybody liking me, all about insecurities and I knew that everything that I had done to this point was 
burned. But it's funny because I was so excited. Because I was young. It was like, it was like getting all of the answers to the test before the test. I'm like, what a, what a privilege. What a privilege to know how it is. Not how you wish it was going to be or what, but this is what's going, this is what it's going to be on. And I just, I, I just repented so thoroughly before God. I sent, I, because I was so blessed by this, I sent it to several people that got mad at me. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Today, this is one chapter in a book Rick Joyner wrote called The Final Quest. I want to just give you a few things that were said by these guys that had been judged. Here's what one of them said. What looks good on earth looks very different here. What will make you a king on earth will often be a stumbling block to keep you from being a king here. What will make you a king here is lowly and unesteemed on earth. I failed some of the greatest tests and missed some of the greatest opportunities that were given to me. God has a different set of history books than those on the earth. You have had a glimpse of this, but you do not yet know how different they are. Earthly histories will pass away, but the books that are kept here will last forever. If you can rejoice in what heaven is recording about your life, you are blessed indeed. Men see through a glass darkly, so their histories will always be clouded and sometimes completely wrong. A few nights later, I had a dream. And in this dream, I'm in the middle of our sanctuary at Beth, it's called Bethel Assembly. And, uh, Half of the people are gone. It's Sunday morning. It's time for church, and half the people aren't there. And I am frustrated as the pastor. And I'm, it's so real to me. And I wake up, and I, said to, I told Alice the next day, I said, I, I don't know what's going on, if I'm frustrated by our people or angry or what, but this, this is what the dream was. So the very next night, I have the exact same dream. It's Sunday morning. We're in church it's half full, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what's going on. Where is everybody? And a voice speaks over the top. I can hear this voice, and it says this. Do you want to be a true success or only have the appearance? And I immediately wake up. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God is speaking. He is speaking to this church about revival, about embracing the move of the Spirit. There was a move of the Holy Spirit in the mid-90s, and he wants me to take this church in that direction. And I know in my heart they don't want to go there. And I know that true success is just doing what God tells you to do, not trying to keep people. But I'm a Bible guy. This is a very uncomfortable dream. So I say, Lord, thank you for that dream. I need to see it in the Bible. I need to see it in the Bible. So here's the verse the Lord gave me, Mark 15, 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Here was the word. Pilate wanted two things. He wanted everybody to be happy and he wanted to be innocent. He washes his hands and says, I'm innocent. And the Lord just, just very gently but very clearly says this, you can't have it both ways. If you choose to live for the multitudes, 
you are, will not be innocent before me. You cannot have it both ways. And it was a defining point of my ministry. I'm going to live for the audience of one. I'm going to live for that one opinion, regardless of what the people decide to do. So we're going to have communion this morning. Paul says, whenever you take communion, that we are to judge ourselves so that we won't be judged. We were at the well on Friday night praying about Pentecost. This is Pentecost Sunday, by the way. And I saw something so clearly on Friday night about Isaiah. See, Isaiah knows the people have unclean lips. He sees himself as righteous, and the people all have unclean lips. And then he's at the temple. It's this time of upheaval. King Uzziah has just died. He was a king for 52 years. It is a time of political turmoil. It is a time of upheaval. And where is he? He's in the temple seeking God. Seeking, I mean, how many know when the king dies, there's opinions about what we should do and who's going to be next and, and, and all of the political intrigue and maneuvering and, and he's in the temple and he sees above the earthly kings and he sees the king upon his temple. And he sees him high and holy. He sees the seraphim that are the fiery ones worshiping. And he is able to see, by the grace of God, his own sin. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And the angel comes and takes a coal from the altar. This has been shown to you not because God wants to condemn you, because God has atoned for your sin. He comes, your sin has been died for. At the, in that time it was animals, but they all represented Christ. Your sin has been atoned for. And he comes and he brings fire and puts it on his lips. And he says, now go. Go as my witness. So we're there Friday night and I'm just like, oh my Guys, we're on Pentecost Sunday. This is Pentecost today. Do you know, if you read the one-year Bible, do you know what today's one-year Bible reading was? Pentecost, Acts chapter two. Do you know what happens in Pentecost? It's a time of tremendous disruption and, and upheaval. You got Pilate with his maneuvering and Herod with his maneuvering and, and Tiberius and Rome with his maneuvering and they are gathered in the temple of God. They are going beyond what's going on here and they're, they're before the temple of God, very much like Isaiah. It's like a corporate Isaiah. And what happens? A mighty rushing wind comes on the day of Pentecost and fire comes from heaven and rests upon every single head, every single tongue, every single heart. And God raises them up as his witnesses to go for him. What's the difference? What's the difference between Isaiah and the church? Results. God told Isaiah, this isn't going to work. People are hard. God says to, to Peter and the disciples, this is going to work. This is my hour. When Peter stands up, he says, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Men, women, young, old, I am going to come. I am going to speak. It is the favorable year of the Lord. Peter stands up and 3,000 get saved in the first meeting, which is actually the fulfillment of Pentecost. Pentecost was when the early harvest came in. Pentecost is not fulfilled when you have chill bumps. And when, and when you get a prayer language, when you, that's not the fulfillment of Pentecost. Pentecost is when the, the early harvest comes in. When we go out filled with the Spirit, when we go out with fire, because we've been cleansed. The church will never reach the world as long as they're unclean lips and we're the holy ones. No, no, no. 
you're not going to reach the world with that message. That's called self-righteousness. You you need to see your own sin first. You need to see this is all mercy. You need to see what Levon saw. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Hallelujah. Not of ourselves. We don't have a boast about ourselves. Our boast is in him. Our boast is what he's done. Our boast is what he's willing to do for all flesh. Folks, it's Pentecost Sunday. Today, God is saying, who will come before me and be cleansed? Who will receive fresh fire? And who will go and be my witness? Could we have the worship team come, please? We have an open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member at this church as long as you love Jesus. Um, we do ask as they go around and hand it out that you hold on to the emblems and we do ask before you decide yes I'm going to take communion that you would take some time to bring any uncleanness that you've seen even in this service the Holy Spirit's here right now he's so faithful he is not here with a jackhammer to destroy you or some type of a chainsaw to cut you down he's here with a scalpel folks in gentleness. He just wants to remove that which is wrong, that which is unclean. It's already been atoned for. That's what this is. He has fire to put on our lips and our hearts. As the Debbie gave the word of the Lord, this isn't about your past. God has died for your past. It's about what you're going to be going forward from here. So, Guys, come and uh, let's worship together. Hold on to the emblems and, and we're going to receive them together. Bless you. Seven hundred years before Jesus died on the cross, Isaiah penned these words. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Let's eat together. The supper was ended. He took the cup. He said, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant that will be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we pray before we take the cup? Lord, as we contemplate the cross, as we contemplate your suffering, as we contemplate what was necessary for us to be forgiven, we are so deeply humbled that what you did, you did for me. Paul said, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dear Jesus, please help us to make it personal today. Jesus said, take and drink. Let's drink together. 
Would you mind standing together, please? So the early church was gathered not at a political rally. They were gathered at the temple. They were waiting on God. They were waiting in the temple. And it was in that place of humble waiting. It says there were 120 there. Do you know why there was 120 there? Because 10 days earlier, Jesus said, in a few days, the Holy Spirit's going to come. 500 had seen him alive from the dead. Why are there only 120 there? Because a few days were already gone. God counts differently than we do. How many know that? A day is as a thousand years. Jesus says a few days. Well, for me, that's two or three. It's 10. Those that said, well, I guess this is all we're going to get. They just had left. There's only 120 left. Waiting on God. What a meeting God broke in. So instead of dismissing and having ministry teams, could we just, you dismiss yourself when you need to. Please get your kids at some point. We're just going to open up the altars. We're going to make this place, a place of prayer, a place of waiting for a fresh Pentecost. Lord, what does America need? Certainly we pray for wisdom for our president and wisdom for all the crazy things that are happening in the nations and how to deal with ISIS and how to deal with NATO and what are we going to do about the environment and all of those things. But God, we're going above the kings of this earth. Put ISAB on our hearts that we would see the king. That we might worship the king. May this church be pleasing in your eyes, oh God. And may our lives Jesus, would you burn half-heartedness out of us? Would you burn this desire to kind of use you to make our own little kingdom better? Burn it out of us, Jesus. There is a voice speaking from the throne today, and it's this. Who will go for me? Who will go, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if you get persecuted, who will go for me? And Lord, we're here together saying, here am I, send me. Fill us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, God bless you.